Good morning. It's me again. Um, Ty's on sabbatical for the next three months. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, he's not. I kid. I kid. Uh, he'll be back next week. Hey, uh, my name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, hey, before we jump into God's Word this morning, I got a, an announcement for you. You may have heard we have a marriage conference coming up at the end of the month. I just want to let you know that if you're still waiting to, uh, to the very end to sign up, that uh, we're going to just say, don't do that. Uh, this is actually the last week that you can actually sign up for child care. Uh, after this week, it'll be closed. You can still register for the marriage conference. You just won't have the availability of childcare. Actually, even now, uh, a lot of the rooms are starting to fill up. So if that is you and you want to get in on that, uh, today looks like it's your day. So uh, as we jump in this morning, I'm going to present you with four scenarios, and I want you to respond back and tell me if it's a good thing or a bad thing, all right? Bringing my wife roses home from work. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. Okay. Um, a guy lives next door to an elderly couple and he helps them around the house because they're getting up in age. So he runs some errands around. He does some minor repairs around the house for them. Good thing or bad thing? Okay, good thing. A father shoving his son. Good thing or bad thing? Okay. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> uh, all right. So most, most agree that that's a bad thing. Uh, discovering a vaccine for polio. Good thing or bad thing? All right. What if I told you that the only reason why I bought my wife flowers was to get out of going to see my mother-in-law later that evening? Good thing or bad thing? All right. Um, what if I told you that a guy next door to the elderly couple was only doing that to manipulate them to drain their bank account? Good thing or bad thing? What if I told you the father shoving his son uh, was actually shoving him out of the way of an oncoming vehicle and saved his life. Okay. Uh, what if I told you that the person who discovered the polio vaccine uh, actually performed medical experiments on his own children and family, ended up maiming them because of that? Bad thing, right. What I want you to see is our actions, they matter, but so do our motives as well. So, hey, we're going to be in Esther today, uh, continuing our story there. So grab your Bibles, turn with me over to Esther chapter 2, uh, we're going to begin in verse 19. Now, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we say that you're going to need one. And you need one not just so you can follow along, because we're going to put the verses for you on the screen, but you need one so you can take it home and read it and get to know Jesus through the Bible. Now, as we jump in, uh, I want to give a quick series recap of kind of where we've been uh, for those of you maybe who are just joining us today, uh, it's kind of like at the beginning of a TV series. It's a hey, last week on, uh, then they catch, kind of catch you up by hitting the highlights. That's what we're going to do. And so, so far in this story, uh, as we've read, there are a lot of names that have been read in this story. Uh, many of them are difficult to pronounce. Uh, but really, all you need to know is that there are, so far in the story, there are only four main characters. And the first character that we were introduced to is King uh, Ahasuerus. I'm going to get tired of saying that, so I'm going to mess that up at some point. Uh, but King Ahasuerus, see? <laughs> Miles is just going, get it out of the way. Ahasuerus uh, was ruling uh, the Persian Empire. Uh, and what we know about this king is that he was a very powerful king. Uh, he pretty much ruled a majority of the known world at the time. 
He had a lot of, had a, he had a lot of power. He had a lot of influence. He had a lot of wealth. Uh, he was known as the King of Kings, but only the, the small K version, not the capital K version. Uh, and, and, but in, in many ways, people viewed him as almost godlike because of his power and influence. And also, we know that he was a pretty ruthless dude. Uh, and so we pick up, and this king is throwing a party. Throwing a party, good thing or bad thing? Right? Well, we know the king, so we know it's a bad thing, right? But it's okay. But it could be a good thing, right? Motives matter. Uh, so he throws this 180-day party. I can't even imagine that because I can't even make it past 930 on a Friday night anymore. Uh, but for 180 days, everyone's partying, and he instructs everyone to cater to every wish and desire and a whim of everyone that has been invited to uh, the party. Now, we can only assume and you know what they say about assumptions, but we can only assume that what we know about this king is that he didn't throw the party out of the kindness of his heart, right? Um, he didn't say, you know, my subjects, they've been faithful and loyal to me, and they've really been working hard, and, you know, been grinding the midnight oil, burning the midnight oil, and, you know, I just want to show my, my love and appreciation for, for them and how hard they've been working. I just want to provide an opportunity for them to kind of get away from the office and, and let loose and just throw this party for them to show them my appreciation. Do you think he said that? No, no he didn't. Um, uh, actually, this party was very self-serving. Uh, and he did it to gain the loyalty of the people around them, to earn their praise, to earn their power, uh, the, earn their, um, to show off his power and his influence. And uh, he was really just trying to gain influence with the people. He wanted everybody to kind of just say, wow, look at him. He's so great and awesome. And so the king, he gets caught up in the moment of all this praise and all this worship. And he says, I want more. And so he comes up with this really dumb idea. And before we're too hard on King Ahasuerus, um, we've been there before too, right? We, we're, we're going along, we're, we're, do, we're, in a, we're in the zone, we're maybe enjoying something and it's a good thing, uh, but then we take things maybe just a little bit too far. You know, two cookies was good, but you know, that told 12 dozen, now my stomach hurts, right? Um, or one beer is good, but a whole six pack is better, right? Or gambling 20 bucks is fun, but you know, imagine how much fun it would be to gamble my entire paycheck. So we've all been there where we've kind of just gone and taken a good thing and maybe taken it a bit too far. So the king says, you know what would be even more fun in this? Let's bring the queen out and parade her around in front of everyone uh, so everybody can look at her as this, this object. Uh, and he did this not so she could have dignity and to uh, like show her off as an image bearer of God. Uh, it was really to demean her and devalue her humanity and to do it sexually as well. Uh, and so he did that so everyone says, man, look how great our king is. So now we got the evil king and we're introduced to this Queen Vashti. And now she has been invited to this party. And now she's got a few decisions to make. And I'm sure the clash uh, was running through her head of should I stay or should I go, right? Uh, if I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. Uh, and so Vashti here, she's like, she's met and she's like, these are not good options here. It's either go to the party and be devalued as a human and uh, just be uh, ridiculed and just like, just, just, 
um, just really mistreated and abused, or I could stay here, disobey the king, but suffer the consequences that go along with that. And we see that Queen Vashti actually in this situation makes the absolute right choice in this. And um, we would love to say that when we make the right decision, that always equals a right and good outcome, don't we? But we see any, sometimes doing the right thing is met with hard and difficult consequences. And so last week, we're met with two new characters in the story, Mordecai and Esther. And we know that Mordecai is a Jew. Uh, he's living in a foreign land, and he's doing his best to live and assimilate into that land. He's, he's blending in with the, the pagan culture around him. Uh, and Ty said that last week that Mordecai and Esther, that they were compromisers. That they weren't living the ways of God. They weren't living as Jewish people who were living according to Jewish law in, in ways that they, what they, maybe what they wore, what they ate, what the, how they worshipped, how they worked. Uh, and really, they kind of had to maybe do some of these things uh, to assimilate into a pagan land. Uh, and so you had to kind of live like the locals. And Mordecai and Esther, what we know is that they had an opportunity to return to the promised land. In fact, uh, Nehemiah pretty much said, hey, everybody, if you're a Jew, uh, if you're part of the nation of Israel, uh, we've been exiled, but we can return home. So you need to kind of return home now. And so he kind of said, hey, that needs to happen. Now, it, it kind of it's hard to hear sometimes, especially in a story of like Esther, and we, we've always thought of her as this fine, outstanding woman. Uh, and, and I think we're going to go on to, to, to maybe see that in the story. But right now, this is kind of where we're at, that Mordecai and Esther are compromisers. Now, you could make the argument that they were just kind of doing everything that they needed to do just to survive in that abusive kind of system, right? But when it comes down to it, and this is the point in the story, that Mordecai and Esther chose to compromise. They chose not to do the right thing. Uh, compare and contrast that with Queen Vashti. She had a difficult choice, much like Mordecai and Esther did. And in that moment, and I'm not saying Queen Vashti was not a compromiser. Maybe she was. Um, but in this moment, she was not. She chose the right thing to do, which was to disobey the king and suffer the difficult, hard consequences that come with that. But we see Mordecai and Esther did not do that. They chose to compromise. And it's the idea that they're not living in the, the, the promised land that God gave them. And it's always uh, indicative of if, you, if the nation of Israel was outside the promised land, it was the equivalent of being outside and away from God. So we, we can draw that conclusion that since they're not living in the promised land, uh, that they are actually away from God. And so now we have our four characters. And now we get to the point where the king is sad because he has vanished his queen. And this poor king, he's had such a hard life and he's lonely and he doesn't know what to do. So he gets some advice and they say, hey, you know what? You should just go find a new queen. And he finds a new queen in Esther. Uh, he likes what he sees and he uh, makes Esther his queen. And then at the very end of last week, uh, this king, uh, he throws a party. He cuts taxes 
he, he lets loose. He throws another party, and this is where we pick up our story this week. Verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, I want to stop right here because we ended uh, 18 with Mordecai, not Mordecai, but the king throwing a party. We're picking up in 19, verse 19, and he's, guess what he's doing? He's throwing another party. He's like Pedro, you know, vote for Pedro. I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. That, like, this is what he does. He's just, he's just at it again. So he's throwing another party. Uh, throwing a party, good thing or bad thing? Nah, it could be. Okay. You guys are catching on real fast. You're scared to, you're scared to answer now. <laughs> um, throwing a party could be a good thing. We don't know. Um, but we know King A here. Uh, he's not a nice guy. And this party was not to celebrate Esther as queen, uh, but to make himself look good. This was what we would refer to as the runner-up party. And this is where he took all the women that he did not choose as queen and he paraded them around uh, so everyone can look at them and look at their beauty and, you know, kind of awe, be in awe over that. And then he could stand up and say, I'm too good for these women. Uh, and then he would point out Esther and say, like, here, this is the superior woman. And because I'm the superior man, I get the superior woman. And it was really just to promote himself. So, again, he's having another party. Uh, trying to make himself look good. Um, and so far, what we know, like, like from through two chapters, this is just a, a gross story in every way. And like, it, like that's, that's the only way really to put it. It's just gross. And so while all this is happening, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, who, by the way, was not invited to the party, uh, is sitting at the king's gate. Now, what is the king's gate? The king's gate uh, was not like an actual gate where Mordecai was over there just kind of kicking rocks, you know, kind of upset that, you know, why wasn't I invited to the party? I should have been invited to the party. No, the king's gate was actually a government building. Uh, it was kind of like the legislative courthouse of the day. And so Mordecai, he wasn't there protesting human rights, you know, down with King Ahasuerus. Um, no, he was actually working there, which further kind of just shows his, his compromise. And presumably, he kind of held the position of a magistrate or a judge there. And let's, let's keep going here in verse 20 and see what's happening. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Now, I think the interesting part to point out here in verse 20 is that this is the second time in this chapter that the author has made uh, uh, be, has been certain to point out that Esther has not revealed who, uh, who she is really, what her nationality is. She's kept that a secret. Uh, we first read about this in verse 10. Now 10 verses later in, in, in verse 20, we're reading that again. Um, I'm not sure why the author is, is mentioning this twice, uh, but it seems like the author is really wanting us to know this important detail. There's also another important thing to note here in verse 20. Esther obeyed Mordecai. And this is right here, kind of the, not the first place, but we, we really begin to get a glimpse of Esther's character. 
She obeyed Mordecai as she was brought up by him. Now, this doesn't mean that she has good character because she was obeying a man. Uh, and, and I know it would kind of be easy to look at it this way, especially because of the chauvinistic uh, tendencies of the king. But Esther was an orphan, uh, and her uncle had taken her in and had uh, looked after her. He became her guardian. Uh, so she was obeying him like a child should obey a parent. Right? So parents, um, children obeying their parents, good thing or bad thing? Good thing, yeah, good thing. That's a good thing. So I want you to see this. Esther obeying her uncle, good thing. Mordecai taking in his niece, good thing or bad thing? Good thing, yeah, absolutely. And you get to see right here in verse 20, really, the character that Esther and Mordecai have. But they were still compromisers. And it just goes to show you that you can have good moral character, but still be a compromise. You can have good moral character, but still be away from God. You can still do right things, but be away from God. And that's what we see is happening with Esther and Mordecai. Verse 21 says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Big Than and Teresh, uh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hand on King, king A. Uh, and so Mordecai is at work. Uh, he's there. He's, he's uh, uh, taking a break. He's going to the water cooler to get some, uh, catch some office gossip. And he picks up and he hears that these two eunuchs are plotting to uh, kill uh, the king. They're upset with him for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, we don't know why they're going to kill the king. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they're like, you know what? We're tired of this evil dictator. We're tired of him mistreating women. We're tired of him mistreating uh, just people in general. Uh, we need to end this so it no longer happens. Maybe they're seeking revenge because uh, he made them eunuchs. I know if someone made me a eunuch, I would be a little upset as well. Uh, so we don't know why they were plotting to, uh, to kill the king, but they were upset. Now, one of the things you could not say about this King, uh, king A character is that you could not say that he was not an equal opportunity abuser. Uh, because not only did he abuse women, he abused men. It was uh, said that he would round up 500 men every year and turn them into eunuchs uh, and, and place them in servitude for himself. Uh, and that's, that's, that's pretty grotesque right there. Uh, and so it looks like in spite of all the king's efforts to make everybody like him and love him and be... Um, uh, enamored with him, he hasn't won the hearts of everyone. In fact, here's two guys that are plotting uh, to kill him. So now the plot begins to thicken just a little bit. Let's look at verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, uh, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's the end of the episode for this series. Kind of a cliffhanger, right? Uh, there was an evil plot. They investigate. They catch the bad guys, or maybe the good guys in this case. I don't know. Uh, and all they did was they wrote it down. 
They wrote it down in the book, and that was it. The chapter ends on kind of a cliffhanger. And really, we're kind of left with more questions than we have answers to things right now. We're left with questions like, like, why didn't Mordecai just let them kill the king? I mean, wouldn't that have shortened the story of Esther a little bit? Wouldn't that have ensured like, you know, maybe the, the nation of Israel, the, the Jews who were still back there in Persia, um, maybe they would have been saved and rescued and they wouldn't have to go through all that. Uh, maybe other people wouldn't have uh, had to suffer the abuse. I don't know why, why Mordecai just didn't let the eunuchs kill the king. Um, why did Mordecai do the king a solid by saving his life? Why wasn't Mordecai rewarded for his good deed? Um, all he got out of the deal was his name written down in a book. That was it. Which was kind of weird because Persian kings were very well known for honoring and hooking people up who hooked them up. And I don't know, if you save someone's life, you can kind of say they hooked you up, right? Uh, and so Mordecai, he didn't get rewarded for this at all. In fact, as we look in chapter 3, uh, next week, we're going to do a little sneak peek right now, but in chapter 3, verse 1, it just says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Who's this Haman character? I don't know. You're going to have to come back next week to find out who Haman is. But for now, it looks like he's the one that the king is promoting. I mean, really, it should have been Mordecai, right? Because Mordecai saved the, uh, the king's life. But it seems like, for now, Haman is the one that's getting uh, what Mordecai deserved. Do you ever wonder, why did Mordecai do a good deed for an evil king? Like, what, what, what were Mordecai's motives in all of this? Was he doing this because he thought it was the right thing to do, that, you know, even though... Um, he's been placed under this evil king that, you know, he's just kind of just knows that like God puts rulers, a good and bad in authority, and he calls us to submit to them. So maybe he was just doing the right thing here. We don't know. Was he doing it uh, to earn favor with the king? Uh, to like, you know, maybe he was hoping that he got promoted instead of Haman? We don't know. Uh, was he doing it so the king owed him one? So he like put this chip in his pocket and down the road, he's like, you know, something's going to happen. And maybe he's like, yeah, hey, remember this? Remember this happened? You, like, you owe me one now. Uh, guess what? We don't know his motives. We don't know his motives. The Bible does not say. We can only sit here today and speculate what his motives were. But I know me. And I know you, and we know humanity, and we know that we're all a bag of mixed motives, aren't we? We are. We, we all have, really, we have mixed motives. Here's what I mean. Um, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to use myself. And so uh, I, I'm hoping that this is a safe place to kind of confess this uh, in front of you. Uh, you laugh. That makes me a little nervous now. Um, but uh, like, I know you guys, you know me, so uh, I think this is a safe place. When I preach... I really hope Jesus is made much of. I hope God is glorified in that. I hope you are edified by God's word. I, I hope God's word is handled correctly. Uh, I hope you leave here um, just seeing Jesus as more beautiful than before. I want you to see your sin, uh, but also see God's grace and his mercy and, and just run to him and repent and go live for him. That's what I want when I preach. 
But there's also a part of me that wants to get a little bit of the glory too. I don't want all of it. I don't want to steal God's glory. I just, I just want people to walk out saying, God's great. Tim did good. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that's really all I want. So it's mixed motives. It should not be about me at all, should it be? Would you be honest too? Would you be willing to admit that you too probably have maybe some mixed motives? Have you ever gotten a gift from someone and got upset because they didn't write you a thank you card? Or maybe you thought they were going to make a big deal out of this and they didn't give you the big deal that you were hoping for, so it kind of upset you? Have you ever done a good deed and not posted about it on social media? I mean, right, if you don't take a picture of it, it doesn't count, right? Uh, have you ever helped someone move only because they helped you? You didn't want to move. Uh, you didn't like to do that. But the only reason why you're doing it is not because your love for them, but because you owe them one. <laughs> Spouses, have you ever done something nice for your husband or your wife and later you wanted them to maybe do something nice for you uh, and it didn't happen and you got upset? Teens, you want to go out, so you remind your parents of all the chores that you did last week, and uh, you, you remind them about your good grades and all, all of those things that go along. You collaborated on a project at work, and someone else got the credit, and your name did not get mentioned. Did you do it for just the sake of doing a good job, or did you do it for the recognition? We can get into this place where they're, we're kind of taking on this martyr complex, right? Where we'd be like, look at me, I'm doing all this work and I'm doing all these things and, and nobody notices it, nobody sees what I'm doing. Poor little old me. Tyson mentioned earlier about giving. Are you giving so that your finances will be in order or are you giving it out of worship to God? Are you putting your kids in activities because some way you are vicariously living through them? Are you following Jesus just in the hopes that he rewards your life? You know, we sit there and say, Jesus, I've done all these things for you. I've served you faithfully. I've worshiped you. I've given. I've done all these good deeds. Why is my life like this? It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be going through this right now. Truth be told, we probably have hit every one of those things on that list. See, I want you to see this morning that our motives, they, they matter. But why do our motives matter? Like, wh why can't we just do good things? Why does uh, what we, how our intentions behind those good things, why does that matter? Because our motives reveal the true state of our hearts. God cares about our actions, but he also cares about the motives of our heart. We can do the right thing. God cares about doing the right thing. We can all agree with that, right? Yep, he does. Um, but he also cares about our motives for the things that we do. Don't believe me? Let's look at Matthew chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 8. He's talking uh, to the Pharisees. So verse 8, this people honors me with their lips. Honoring God with your, with your lips, good thing or bad thing? Good thing, right? But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Worshiping Jesus, good thing or bad thing? Good thing. Doing it in vain? Bad thing. 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He goes after the begin in Matthew 23. Turn with me over there. Matthew 23, verses, uh, starting in verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! It says, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. And Jesus is saying, Hey, you're doing all the right things. Outwardly, your, your actions look good. And if you think about it, the Pharisees were better than anybody else at doing the right thing. Like nobody could touch the Pharisee when it came to doing the right thing, following all the rules, doing, uh, following all the laws. Uh, and Jesus comes along and says, you are just whitewashed tombs. He says, your actions are right, but your motives are all jacked up. And here's the thing we have to be aware of when it comes to motives. Sometimes when it comes to our motives, we are blind to them. We can think that we're doing things for the right motive, but we're blinded by our own sinfulness, and sometimes we just can't see it. We can think we're doing things uh, with, with pure intentions, but really, God knows our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says our hearts are, are deceitful. They deceive us. And so we become blinded by our sinfulness that sometimes we just can't see our motives. That's why in Proverbs 16, 2, it says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. I can think that I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons. It says, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. We can pretend we're, we're doing the right things for the right actions, uh, doing it for God and for the benefit of others, uh, when in reality, maybe we have some deep-seated selfish reasons. How do we know? How do we know if we have pure motives? I want to give you eight things this morning, really eight questions, and we're going to blow through them real quick. Eight questions you can ask yourself just to see if your motives are pure as you move forward in a right action. Number one, if no one ever knows what I'm doing, giving, serving, sacrificing, would I still do it? If there was no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? Would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? Am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel? If I had to suffer um, for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue to do it? If others misunderstood or criticized my actions, will I stop? If those who I am serving never show gratitude or repay me in any way, will I still do it? Do I judge my success or failure based upon my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do or how I compare with others? Those are some hard questions. They really get to the heart of it, but I, I can sum all of those eight questions up for you real easy. Want me to do that instead of those eight questions? Pure motives come from a pure heart. Pure motives come from a pure heart. Let me illustrate it this way. When you give, do you give with strings attached? And maybe you don't know strings are attached until uh, later when they don't repay you or don't acknowledge it. You get mad and you get upset. So you've done something nice for someone. Did you do that 
just simply because you love them and you care about them and you want nothing, not even a thank you in return? Or do you find out later and by your anger, by your hurt, because they didn't say thank you or they didn't repay you when you needed help? Now, we know we have mixed motives. And so we would, we would kind of think, all right, so because I have mixed motives, does that mean um, I don't have to do anything at all or I shouldn't do anything at all until I get pure motives? No, that's not, that's not, that's not the case. Uh, if that's the case, then nothing would ever get done. Um, I would never preach again. You would never have to help someone move. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Hey, I, I can't help you move. My motives aren't pure. Uh, just like, I just, I just want, just being godly here, okay? Uh, we can get out of doing anything, right? Uh, and just blame it on our faith, right? But here's what happens. When we engage in a behavior, knowing we have mixed motives, we just have to be aware of what our mixed motives are. We have to know them, and we have to be honest with ourselves and with God about that. So for me, when I'm preaching, I can pray, Lord, I want you to be glorified. But I know that there's a part of me that wants to steal a little bit of that spotlight for myself. I've got mixed motives here. Father, will you still do something with my filthy rags anyway and change my heart along the way? Let that be my prayer. Let that be your prayer around your mixed motives. And guess what? God still uses that. He does something with it because he is faithful and gracious to us. But we don't say, oh, well, you know, I got mixed motives. I shouldn't work on that. You know, it just is what it is. Um, we should strive for pure motives. This should be our aim. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, the reality is this side of heaven, we're never going to have pure motives because uh, we still have a sinful self. We still have a flesh to contend with. We don't exhibit pure love. But do you know who does? Jesus. Yeah, you can answer that. Jesus. Think about it. How did it serve Jesus to leave heaven and take on our sin? It didn't. Jesus got the short end of the wishbone when it came to that. The only thing that Jesus got uh, was our sin. That's the only thing he got out of the deal. There was no self-serving interest on his part because he absolutely needs nothing from us. And the only thing Jesus was motivated by was his love for you and for me. Now, it would be easy to draw the conclusion that this story is about motives. And we can draw implications from this story here about why motives matter. And, and motives do matter, and I'm, I'm glad we're able to draw these implications uh, from God's Word and be able to apply them to our lives. But this is not really what the story of Esther is about. It's not some story to teach us a moral lesson here. The story is about God's providence. And God's hand moving even when we don't see it. And God's moving uh, his hand along through this story to bring about his plan and purpose for redemption. So I would say this today. Motives matter, 
but not always. Motives reveal our heart, but they don't thwart God's plan. Right? God uses our motives, whether they're good or bad. He uses our actions, whether they are good or bad, to bring about His plan and purposes. And so what is God's plan? What is He doing in this story? Because so far, it seems like God is absolutely absent. In fact, the whole book, it seems like God is absent because we don't hear any mention of God Himself. But God seems absent. It's like, it's like this king, He's been living unchecked, Right? He's been able to mistreat women. He's been able to abuse his powers. Uh, He's been able to manipulate and uh, dehumanize people. And it's easy to believe that God is absolutely absent. And it causes us to doubt. God, where are you at in all of this? But we can see just a little glimpse at the end of this chapter in verses 19 through 23 that God is beginning to work. We get to see God's providential hand beginning uh, to move through here. And and maybe the king isn't as safe and liked as much as he thinks he is. And what is God doing? We don't know, but we know what God is at work. We know he's at work in this story, but it's hard to see. And sometimes, even in our own stories, it's hard to see God at work. And there are times in your life where you see, man, God's really doing some amazing things in my life. I I can see his hand. I can see what he's doing. I can see where he's leading me. But then there's other times in our story where God seems absent. We can't see God working in our life. And we wonder if God is even there. And we begin to doubt, God, where are you in this? And so I would just ask this morning, are you looking for God's hand in your life? Do you trust that even when you don't see God's hand, do you trust that God is always at work? Even when you are sleeping, God is working in your life to bring about his plan and purposes for your life. I love what John Piper has to say about this. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them, if you're lucky sometimes. And there are times where we only see a tiny little fraction of what God is doing. And even the things that we see that God is doing, sometimes they don't even make sense to us. Like, God, why is this happening? It doesn't make sense. Like, what are you doing in my life? But we know we can trust Him. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to bow your heads, and maybe you're here and you would say, Tim... Right now, I can see what God is doing. I can see God moving in my life. I can see, you know, just the fruits of, uh, of what he is doing. And we would just say, praise God for that. But maybe you're here this morning and you feel like God's providential hand is not on you. Maybe you don't see God working in your life and you're beginning maybe to wonder, uh, God, are you even there? I want you to, all of you, Think back to the moment to when God saved you. For those right now who can see God working in their life, let this be maybe an exercise for those times when you don't see God working. And for those of you who are struggling to see God's hand working in your life, let this be an encouragement now. 
Just think back to that moment where God saved you. That moment where you began to realize your own sin, but also you awakened to the beauty of Christ. You saw how lovely and wonderful he is. You saw his grace and you saw his mercy uh, in your life. And, And that was that moment you really began to see God actively working in your life, moving you from death to life. Do you remember what that experience was? Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember the joy that came with that? In those moments where you begin to doubt God is working in your life, I want you to think back to that moment you were saved. Hold on to that moment because this is what I want you to know. You were bought with a price. God did a great work in your life in bringing you from death to life. And because of that, he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to let you down. Uh, And I want you to hear his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. I want you to hear him invite you to trust him to know that he is working in your life. He's not going to leave you out to dry. He's not going to go um, die on the cross for you and leave you hung out, but that God is at work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we're, we're grateful that you love us. Lord, we want to be honest and say that we, we love you really to the best of our human capacities. And sometimes uh, that comes with mixed motives, but we, we, we're, we're grateful that even in spite of that, that you still love us and that you still pursue us and that you're still faithful. And it's really good to know that our salvation and our relationship with you isn't based on our motives, but it's based on yours. Your motives and your heart for, for us So, Father, just forgive us those times where we, um, maybe our motives in doing things, uh, doing right things is is not as it should. Well, I just pray that you would just begin to move our hearts by your love into just a greater love and a more pure love for, for you and for one another. So, Father, I just pray for those here who maybe just don't see you working in their lives at the moment. Uh, Father, I just pray that um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would be able to see and trust and know that even they don't see your providential hand moving in their life, that you are constantly at work in their life and you are working all things together for their good. And so, Father, we love you and we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.